Well, Luke 2, starting in verse 1, Scripture says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child." So Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, is ruling much of the known world. And when we read about these different kings in the Christmas story, we might confuse them sometimes with Herod. Um, but, but Herod was very local. Herod was local. He knew all about Jesus. Caesar was national. Uh, Herod heard about the birth of Jesus and he was concerned. He was the one who was upset that this, this new king had come. But Caesar didn't hear about it. In fact, he probably died having not heard about it. Uh, He's not at all concerned with the birth of a Jewish baby in Bethlehem. He's concerned about things that he thinks are bigger. He's concerned about himself. Uh, Augustus Caesar was was the nephew of Julius Caesar, but he was adopted to be his son and he was made the heir. There had been a, a civil war after Julius Caesar's death and Augustus emerged as one of three leaders, but he didn't really get along with those other guys. And because they had some disagreements, he killed them. And then he became the, the only king. And in their days, Roman leaders were worshiped as gods. Uh, Julius Caesar was declared a god at his death and worshiped by people. But this Augustus Caesar, he took it to the next level. He was kind of an overachiever. So he actually encouraged the cult worship of his name while he was still alive. So people would basically like go to church, if you will, to worship Caesar. And he, he took the name Augustus, even though his birth name was Octavian. And this name Augustus means the majestic or the holy one. So he thought that he was worthy of reverence. He thought he was a pretty big deal. He thought he was in charge. Uh, He was so revered that there were coins that were struck with his image on them that called him the divine Caesar, the son of God. They found an inscription somewhere that, that said that his birthday signaled the beginning of the good news or the Greek word gospel. In 17 BC, there was actually a strange star that appeared in the sky, Caesar's Comet. And so he had an Advent celebration for 12 days so that the nation could worship departed Julius Caesar and celebrate the coming of Augustus Caesar. So Augustus loved him some Augustus. And he is a a powerful king. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's worthy of worship, he thinks. And, And here he issues an edict that everybody has to go to his hometown to be registered in a census. He's counting his people, he's measuring his strength, but also he's humiliating the the Jews specifically. Uh, This census was essentially signing up to be taxed by Rome. In the past, the Jews had paid taxes in the temple. They paid their taxes there and and that was how they worshiped. But now the emperor is going to tax them and he's gonna tax them directly. So they all need to go to their ancestral hometown to sign up for the privilege of being taxed by the occupying empire. So he's adding insult to injury here. Imagine if to pay your property taxes, you were forced to travel 80 miles by foot and pay them to a government that you despised. So he's counting his people. He's subjugating these Jews. He puts this huge burden on them and it hits Joseph and Mary extra hard because Joseph has to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem with Mary to register. And this is an 80 mile trip that they have to take while she is very pregnant. 
I mean, my wife has had four babies and there's never been a time where at 32 weeks pregnant, she asked to take an 80 mile donkey ride. Like that was not on the agenda at that point, but they had to do this. And, and there's this nagging thought that would have been plaguing the Jews that, that the oppression of Rome was now at an all-time high. So they have to be wondering, were the stories that we grew up believing that about God rescuing his, rescuing his people, about God caring for his people, were those stories true? I mean, we grew up believing these stories about God leading us out of Egypt into the promised land so that we could be free to worship him without fear. But they've got to be thinking, were those things all lies? Because we're in that promised land and we're not free. We're not worshiping him without fear. And maybe if those stories were true, maybe we blew it so badly that God has now completely walked away from his covenant, completely walked away from his people. Maybe the whole thing's over. So this God king makes a ruling. They have to obey. And it couldn't have come at a worse time. Verse six, it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this is the road trip where everything goes wrong. The minivan breaks down, someone gets sick in the back, you get lost, you left a suitcase back at the motel. This year for Mary and Joseph has been quite the ride. She found out she was pregnant. He thought of not marrying her after all and calling off the engagement. But then an angel appeared and said not to do that. She suffers scorn and shame from her community. And now they have to take this trip because of a tyrannical king's order. And and they're thinking maybe they can make it home to Nazareth before she gives birth. But now she starts to give birth. And here's this Mary who knows that she's been called the one who is favored by the Lord but this woman favored by the Lord is now giving birth to a baby in a little hick town called Bethlehem in a stable. We add a lot of Christmas folklore to these stories, stories about Mary having a painless birth and little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, but, but there's no evidence in the Bible that this was a supernatural birth. It was a supernatural pregnancy for sure. She, she, he was conceived of a virgin. It was certainly a supernatural baby as this baby is all God and all man. But this is a regular birth in terrible conditions, away from home, no vacancies in the hotels, and a feeding trough for a crib. So you look at the situation, and it seems like obviously God has lost control of this situation. You've got an out-of-control big government ruining what God is up to in the world. The girl from Nazareth is giving birth in this strange town of Bethlehem. Not so much of a silent night where all is calm and all is bright. And it looks like the one who's really running the show here is Caesar Augustus. And so things are going really badly for for Joseph and Mary, the descendants of King David from Israel. This majestic Caesar, the, the son of God, appears to be on the throne, and he's paying no attention to this Jewish teenage mom. In fact, Augustus Caesar died in 14 AD, probably never heard about the Christmas story that he's featured in so prominently as we read backwards, and he definitely wouldn't have thought of that year as 14 AD. I mean, to him, that was the, the Roman year 767 AUC. He, there, there'd be no reason for that to be year 14 when he died because he never heard about Jesus. So a lot went wrong on that first Christmas. It was chaos from a human perspective. But from the perspective of God's reign, all is calm and all is bright. God is in charge of this whole thing. 
he used the megalomaniacal king who thought that he was a god to issue an unjust edict and an oppressive law to move Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus could fulfill the, the prophetic saying that he was a Nazarene and to fulfill the promise from Micah in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clan of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So what seemed to be the end of God's faithfulness to his people, this edict from Caesar that subjugated them, was actually the instrument that God used to fulfill his covenant promises to the Jews. And then soon after this, Herod would issue his evil edict that the male children around Bethlehem should be killed. And that drives Joseph and Mary and Jesus into hiding in Egypt to fulfill what Hosea had said in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, so that when Jesus came out of Egypt, he would, he would follow in the footsteps of Israel. God had synced up this whole thing so that this light from the far off star that had been traveling through space for ages showed up in the sky, just in the right place to guide the wise men when everything seemed like it was going wrong, it was all going according to plan. But keep in mind that none of it seemed that way back then. And from our perspective, 2000 years later, Christmas worked like clockwork. Like it all went according to plan. God had planned this out for thousands of years. It went exactly right. But there's no way that the people who were going through it could see it that way. So this is big for us to remember that when life feels like it's chaos, when it feels like everything's falling apart, when it doesn't seem like God's in control, it only seems that way. And for us to believe that he's in control and to believe that everything's working out according to his plan, we don't have to be able to perceive that. We believe that by faith. In this story, God's using everything. He's using all of creation, all of history, even the wicked decisions made by arrogant kings to fulfill his plan. God was always completely in control. In Proverbs 21, 1, it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is the king over all the other kings on earth. A lot of people come along and they think that they're in control of things. There can be kings and presidents and company owners and landlords and parents and bosses and pastors who can come to start to think that they're a pretty big deal and they can come to start to think that they're sovereign. But God rules over all of them. And at this time, there were all kinds of plots and plans against God's people. Caesar was oppressing the Jews. Herod was specifically seeking to kill Jesus. But these decisions were ultimately under God's hand of sovereign control, and he turned them to fulfill his purposes. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, or the, the, the die is rolled, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Remember, Luke wrote this book to, to assuage our doubts and to give us faith. And, and again, those circumstances in Bethlehem from the inside out gave all kinds of reason for people to doubt. To doubt if God's in control, to, got, to doubt if God still cares, to doubt if God has uh, maybe abandoned his people. And a big part of this message to us is that we don't have to see how God is working out his plan to believe that he is. Scripture says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not, not seen. 
but pretty often we kind of sit as God's judge. We ask for evidence that, that he knows what he's doing. We demand a full explanation of how it'll all played out, play out. We treat him like he answers to us and we treat him sometimes like he's guilty until proven innocent. Sometimes we'll act like we're the all-knowing sovereign judges, like we're the majestic ones, like we're the ones who are worthy of worship. Really, our hearts aren't all that different from the heart of Caesar Augustus in this story. But God proves in this story that he's got the whole thing under control. God never ceased to govern the world. He never ceased to preserve the world. He never ceased to care for the world so that it fulfills all of his intended purposes. What looks like a total goat rodeo to us is always under his sovereign control. And even if the rulers and the leaders never acknowledge his sovereignty in their lifetime, even if they deny his existence altogether, even when they try to replace him like Caesar did, God will still use them as his pawns to steer history exactly where he wants it to go. God's sovereign. He's in control. And, and you see this clearly in the cross of Jesus. You have the rulers of the world conspiring to commit a horrible sin. They nail Jesus to the cross. They, they crucify the Lord and everything went exactly according to God's plan. Even the evil king's heart was like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord that he steered it where he wants it to go. And so if you come in this morning and you feel like I'm just plagued with all these doubts and my doubts come because of my circumstances. It doesn't seem like God is working things together for my good. It doesn't seem like he is good to me. It doesn't seem like he does care for me. We can look at this Christmas story and say, well, even when it seems like that, doesn't mean that that's true. We just don't have all the information. In 2,000 years from now, if God gives that, many Christians will look back at our day and they'll look at some of the hardships that Christians went through in our day and they'll see them as some of the things that God used to fulfill his sovereign good plan. And if in 2,000 years, even if they can't see it, in 2,000 years, we'll certainly be able to look back and say, yeah, God did everything well. As Christians, we're people of faith. And faith is believing in some things that we can't see. They're things that we know that we can be sure of, but we can't see them. We, we often see God's goodness, but when we don't see his goodness, we can trust his goodness. When we don't see how God is working all things together for our good, we can trust that he is. And if we under, ever wonder what is the grounds for my be able, being able to trust in that, we can read again the Christmas story. And more than that, we can read the story of the cross where God took the worst things that people have ever done and he turned them for our good if we believe. It would also have been easy for people who only ever saw one kind of king in their day and one kind of power to be confused by how God was doing things at this first Christmas. Kings are announced in palaces. Kings are announced with trumpets and fanfare. The, The nobles come out in droves when a king is born. But this announcement's made to ordinary people. In verse eight, it says in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And so they're announcing that Christ has come as the savior. He's the rescuing king, 
but they announce it to shepherds. And these shepherds have got to be thinking like, Gabriel, you got the wrong address here. Like this, there's no reason to come tell us because shepherds probably don't care all that much about who the king is. And they go out to watch their sheep in the field. And if there's a new king, then they go out and they watch their sheep in the field. And if somebody else comes to power from the other side, they go out and they watch their sheep in the field. They do the same things every day, relatively unaffected by who's the king. They aren't the big power players in society. They aren't influencers. These shepherds hardly had any Instagram followers at all, but still the angel said, we're announcing this to them. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And again, it's all confusing. You're going to find the king in a feeding trough. We're going to announce it to shepherds, but, but he's really a king and he's going to be in, in a stable and he would be a king who really brings peace to his people. Remember, they already had a king who brought peace in Caesar, but the way he brought peace, the way he brought about this Pax Romana was by killing all of his opponents. He brought peace and he did it through, through fear. He did it through violence. But here's this new king coming, announced to shepherds laying in a trough. He must be bringing a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of power, different kind of glory that had never been displayed this way before. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord's made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This was a totally different kind of king. They knew about kings who reigned through violence, but this was a king in a manger. They knew about kings who brought peace by killing their adversaries, but this was a king who made himself helpless. They knew about kings who fought their way to the top so that they could reign, but this is a king reigning from a stable. This was a different kind of king who from the beginning of his earthly life and all the way through his earthly life kept going to the lowest places. And so as you follow the story of Jesus, you see him going to a sinner's party. You see him meeting with a promiscuous woman at a well in a, in a shady town. You see him breaking the cleanliness code by, by taking a dead girl by the hand and, and rising her to life. He goes to an adulteress's trial in John 8 and then at the end of the story, he goes to a sinner's cross. In Luke 23, verse 32, it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. 
So from the beginning to the end of his life, Luke is contrasting the rulers who rule with fear and violence, the rulers who scoff, and Christ, who's the ultimate ruler. There are authorities and powers who think they're presiding, but they're presiding over the ultimate power, who's down in a low place with the criminals. Jesus went to the low places. In fact, he went to the lowest place. He was buried in a tomb. He went all the way down to death. And it was only after he had descended as low as you could go that he rose again. And now he's seated at the right hand of God's throne. And it would be easy to doubt. It'd be easy to doubt his reign when he reigns in a way that's so different than we would expect. But this is our king. He is our sovereign. He really does reign. And we really are a part of his kingdom that's grown for 2,000 years straight in every corner of the world. But the fact that he is our king, that he is the one we follow, means that the way of life in his kingdom has to be really different for us. I mean, this is a kingdom where the greatest become the least. This is a kingdom where the way to the top was to go all the way down. And this is a kingdom where the crowns are made out of thorns. And if as Christians, our king goes to the absolute lowest place, then this must be an upside down kingdom with values that are very different from the values of the kingdom of the world. It's a kingdom where the greatest and the most powerful make themselves less than others to serve them. Listen to how this life in this kingdom plays out. Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So it's a kingdom where we follow our king by serving. It's also a, a kingdom that gives power not to reign as kings, but to serve and to lay down our lives for others. It's a place where we do compete to outdo one another. And Romans 12, 10 says, we love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. There's a mad race in this kingdom and it's a, it's a race to honor others more than ourselves. It's a clamoring for significance, but it's the significance of others. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In this kingdom, the way to really gain your life is to lay your life down. Luke 9.23 says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is a place where the way to the highest seat at the table is by going to the lowest seat. Jesus said in Luke 14, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, go, go give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
When Jesus came to a low place at Christmas and then progressed to a lower place on the cross, he did what it took to save us. But he also showed us that the way of life in his kingdom is a way where the most powerful one lays down his life. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to reign is to serve. The way to be happy is to not try. The way to find yourself is to not go looking, but to lose yourself. The world tells us all the time that the way to have joy is by climbing to the top. So we fight our way to the top, we step on everybody, and then never find the peace and the safety that we were after. But we learn from Christmas that this kingdom is different. That here, the way up is down. The way to real joy is to give yourself, not to exalt yourself. And the most powerful place is the cross. So the king came and he brought a very different kingdom. And there's this clear contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. And really it's the same contrast as the contrast between religion and the gospel. In the religion, we, in religion, we, the way up is to work hard, to do good, to work our way to God, and then maybe get accepted by him. But the gospel, the true good news, there the way, way up is down. It's by admitting that we're sinful, by admitting that we've failed, by admitting that we deserve the wrath of God and, and admitting that we can't fix it, we can't save ourselves, but that the king came to do that. And so if today you recognize that, if you're kind of at that end of yourself, you recognize your sinfulness, but you're willing to believe, to believe that the king came, to believe that the king died and was buried and rose again, and to trust in him and hang your life on him, he promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. So if you come to him empty and needy and sinful, he comes with forgiveness and grace. But if you come high and mighty with your own righteousness, he has nothing to offer. So let's come to him by faith again today.